conversations with GIPR, which is the stock symbol for generation income properties, came about because there are plenty of resources about REITs, net lease properties, and tangential information from people pontificating about the growing industry. But it all started to blur together and there was little differentiation between the various topics that were being publicly covered by anyone with an internet connection. We haven't seen any podcasts that are hosted by a public net lease REIT that will expose the listener to various concepts that are topical, behind the scenes, and maybe, just maybe, interesting enough to listen to for 30 minutes. So go wash those dishes, go for your run, or if you're watching by video, get the popcorn, or if you're like me, deep condition your hair, all while listening to Conversations with GIPR. David Sobelman is the CEO for Generation Income Properties. All opinions expressed by David or any guest of Conversations with GIPR are solely opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the company. Any remarks in this podcast, other than purely historical information, may include forward-looking statements and as such are subject to the risks and uncertainties that are discussed in our SEC filings, and actual results may vary materially from those suggested in any forward-looking statements. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Hi, everyone. I'm David Sobelman, CEO of Generation Income Properties. Uh, Today, I have a very, very special guest of Aaron Halfacre, CEO of Motive REIT. Aaron, welcome to Conversations with GIPR. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I think it's very unique that we have two net lease REIT CEOs on a podcast together. And we just don't see that that often. Usually a REIT CEO is interviewed by some form of media and they're asking them kind of canned questions for the most part, Um, maybe uh, softball questions, one might say. Um, So I just thought it would be really interesting to the listeners of our podcast and for our respective shareholders uh, to see two uh, CEOs together talking about well, what ultimately becomes you. <laughs> so so um, we're really, really grateful for the listeners um, out there. We are actually in the Switzerland of real estate. We're in Denver, Colorado today, uh, which was not exactly equidistant between our respective offices, but just a good central point for us to get together. So Aaron, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. We're excited to hear from you. You're one of the more, more fun people that I talk to on a regular basis. And I'm just excited to have you. Well, again, thank you for having <laughs> me. I appreciate it. I, I agree with you. I think most uh, instances where we see a CEO, it's, it's, it's a pseudo infomercial. <laughs> and right. you know, they're usually pitching. And you know, I, I hope today that we don't do any pitching and we just talk about our right. industry and our passions and what we do. Yeah, good. Aaron, I'm always interested in like how, what's in a name. I think I think words matter. I think uh, a name matters. So tell me what's in the name Motive and what's the background of the company? Yeah, so Motive stands for monthly dividends. Um, the company, its prior legacy had, you know, it was a crowdfunding company. And after we had merged the REITs together and wanted to transform it, I really thought about what is one of the most important tenets of what we're doing. And that was providing 
uh, a monthly recurring income, passive mm-hmm. income mm-hmm. to our investors. Mm-hmm. And so monthly dividends, I mean, we, we know about, O. we know mm-hmm. there's a lot of monthly dividend payments. You're one of them too. So it's not, well, let's, it, let's be clear. Let's clarify. O is realty income, <laughs> realty. That's their also, symbol. <laughs> also known as the monthly dividend company. Right. And they, right. you know, they've been phenomenal yeah. what they do for, mm-hmm. for the last, you know, 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in no way are we trying to be like them. We're, we're unique in our own regard, but, but that's how we came up with motive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, surprisingly though, it's it, because it's a non common word. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get motive, <laughs> motive, motive. Right. Right. So, you know, I think that's the, the intellectual challenge for me is to get it, you know, into the lexicon of, of the investing public. So one day they know what motive is. Right. That's right. I remember in a, um, I was coming up with a name for something in, in my prior career, and we handed a list of names to the IP attorney, and he was going down the list. There was like 20 of them. He's like, you're going to get sued for this one. <laughs> you know, this one will cost you $500,000. Uh, and he puts the piece of paper aside, and he's like, listen, you just got to make up a word. Like, that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And and so um, does it, is there any kind of correlation between motive with a T? You know, there, yeah. there is yeah. a, I believe there is a quantitative investment strategy mm-hmm. shop called Motive. Uh-huh. Um, right. You know, the funny thing is if you think about, and sometimes we do as a tagline, um, motivated. And so we spell it with motivated with a D. Yeah. Because when you pronounce motivated, you don't usually say motivated. Right. <laughs> right. Um, at least not in the you know, lazy American. That's exactly right. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, I think it's interesting. People, mm-hmm. it when... It, what was interesting to me, though, and this is um, common, like when you, you hear about when someone buys a new car mm-hmm. and then suddenly they see that new car everywhere. We came out with motive. We did the intellectual um, rights for mm-hmm. the name mm-hmm. uh, globally. Um, and when you do go through that trademark, you have to pick your industry. So mm-hmm. we picked real estate. Right. Right after we did that and when we had listed the preferred, there was another motive care that came out publicly right and then there was a motive um <laughs> uh design shop right. graphic design shop out of san francisco and then there was a motive like uh women's athletic wear so if you like type up motive <laughs> there's several now and i was like i thought this was an original right, word but right. apparently it wasn't so. <laughs> that's great so um you motive is is a fairly new name for the company um so discuss with us um the prior name mm-hmm. and your involvement in the company uh, since you began. Yeah, so there, it's a really interesting and no pun intended rich history mm-hmm. uh, for where I came from. We don't, so, we don't know the pun yet. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So the legacy firm was called Rich Uncles. Right. Uh, it was started. The intellectual founder and the initial capital behind it was mm-hmm. a gentleman by the name of Ray Warda. Mm-hmm. He's the former CEO and chairman of CBRE, so the largest real estate company in the world. Yep. Um, I had uh, known Ray in a prior um, life when I was running a student housing REIT. Mm-hmm. And so Ray had, had didn't have the day-to-day responsibilities of this company because he was still at CBRE. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had always believed in sort of the democratization of providing access to retail investors to mm-hmm. institutional quality real estate. Mm-hmm. And the story goes is that way back probably in sort of 08, 09, mm-hmm. um, they had acquired a, a shopping center in Denton, Texas. 
and they put that shopping center into a single purpose REIT. One asset. Yeah. Okay. And then they right. then they began to try to sell those ass, those shares in that thing to the community. He thought, mm-hmm. well, what a great way for the community to own their thing. It didn't work out so well because what happened was the brokers bought all the shares and then, you know, yeah. just, but yeah. it was the genesis of what became Rich Uncles. Right. Rich Uncles started in 2013 uh-huh. as a crowdfunding company. And so if you're familiar, the Jobs Act came out in 2012 mm-hmm. from the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And there was a sort of a, a birth of this new industry of real estate crowdfunding. We had CrowdStreet. We had, mm-hmm. um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the one in Maryland. Uh, and many iterations many, of crowd, many insert word. Yes, right. crowd. <laughs> and so um, they started this. And theirs was unique in a sense that they, instead of syndicating other people's deals, which is the common crowdfunding model, mm-hmm. they raised the capital directly into a REIT. Mm-hmm. And their focus was on that lease assets. Mm-hmm. So the genesis of the firm was Rich Uncles. that started in 2013. And by the time I had joined in, 20, in August of 2018, there was a desire to sort of transform what was a good start, mm-hmm. but was, didn't really have the institutional sort of legs that it needed to continue. Mm-hmm. And, and so that transformation began when I came there, uh, we merged two of the REITs together, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. we internalized, and these were lessons that I had learned being in the REIT industry for 20 years. And then, uh, and it was early 20, and I knew the name was going to, ch- we wanted to change the name. There's nothing wrong with Rich Uncles as a name. It just wasn't a name that I was mm-hmm. uh, identified with. So we took, uh, there was another vehicle called RW Holdings, mm-hmm. RW Holdings and an REIT. Mm-hmm. RW stands for Ray Warda. Affiliated uh, or completely that was, separate? So yeah. the very first REIT they launched was Rich Uncle's REIT. Mm-hmm. Rich Uncle's REIT 1, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then that was a California-only offering. So it only invested in California assets, and it only offered it to California residents. Mm-hmm. Then they went national. Mm-hmm. Uh, filed an S11, mm-hmm. and then did this. And they called it NNN REIT, mm-hmm. which, which is not very original, given that there is a predecessor company called NNN REIT. Right. So it became RW Holdings NNN REIT. Mm. And that's the name that, I identified with because mm-hmm. that was the acquiring entity. Mm-hmm. So that uh, RW Holdings NNN REIT was the larger of the vehicles. That was the acquirer of the Rich Uncles REIT one and the internalization of the management team. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that I wanted to get out of crowdfunding, uh, we I thought about names and we mm-hmm. played with names and we did things like that. And so ultimately, I you know settled in on monthly dividends mm-hmm. motive, mm-hmm. and we launched that. And I believe the beginning of twenty twenty one. Yeah. So you and I have a lot in common based on the original structures of our respective companies because we both started with Jobs Act, which is called mm-hmm. Regulation A plus, um, which was using your very fancy word democratization for the common investor to invest uh, in. Uh, institutional level assets by without being an accredited investor, which generally speaking is a million dollar net worth or greater. Mm-hmm. So um, there's variations on that, but that's the gist of it. So I think, and please correct me, I think we're the only two REITs who have graduated outside of that original structure of Reg A. Well, to be fair, my, uh, we did not utilize Reg A okay. on our structure, but right. we did use auspices of the jobs. Act. Okay. But okay. to your point, right. uh, uh, they, the genesis of both of ours is from the Jobs Act. Right. And I, I agree with you, to my knowledge, certainly at least as it relates to equity REITs, I'm not sure about mortgage REITs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're the only two. Right. Right. Uh, that, that, there are uh, a plethora of 
you know, either public, non-listed, or non-public. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess reggae, they have to be public. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a plethora of them. You know, mm-hmm. the e-reads that, um, mm. again, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the shop. Right. Can <laughs> anyone help me with that? <laughs> they, they get tons of AUM. They're out of Maryland. Uh, yeah. Email us, we'll tell you. Right. right. <laughs> right. Anyway, there's a plethora of these out there. But yes, the only right. two that made it from... Uh, really what is a undercapitalized fledgling type of structure Mm -hmm. into a nationally recognized listed stock exchange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is the big challenge. The intent of it was to allow small companies to grow in the public markets and provide them Without the cost burden. Exactly. And what we found, and I'll opine and then you can disagree, is it was very costly from a financial perspective, very costly from a time perspective, um, it, you still had to use a lot of resources, including money, to raise the money to mm-hmm. do this. So it really um, didn't fulfill what we were ultimately trying to accomplish, um, staying in that like kind of small company, non-accredited investor realm. And we both made a decision to, uh, you know, be on bigger exchanges and and raise uh, capital more institutionally. Right? And I, I think what you. Uh just said echoes in the space because there's been very few outside of the REIT space. Mm-hmm. There's been very few reggae's mm-hmm. utilized mm-hmm. that are now public mm-hmm. entities. There's some, but they're not right. many. Yeah. It's not as efficient as we had all right. hoped. So now you're on New York stock exchange. We're on NASDAQ. Um, we are kind of, um, I would say poster children mm-hmm. of what that was originally intended for. Uh, but we're in the minority of people who have actually tried to do it. So we've been the few success stories of actually graduating to a major exchange. I agree with that. Yeah, good. Um, all right, tell us about Motive. Tell us what you do. Um, what do you focus on? How did you narrow down on your investment thesis? Yeah, so so Rich Uncle's, um, you know, as I mentioned, was his genesis was net, net lease. And generally speaking, whatever that fulfilled. Uh, it, so yeah. they viewed they wanted high quality mm-hmm. institutional grade assets mm-hmm. that. Um, could be acquired at you know a reasonable cap rates that produce that monthly income that mm-hmm. was pretty important to the rich uncle's investor, mm-hmm. um, and not unlike a, lo- a lot of, of the net lease space, they were looking at um, multiple asset types: mm-hmm. uh, office, industrial, retail were the pr- primary three types, mm-hmm. which were very common as you mm-hmm. know in the space. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, the portfolio that sort of that I merged together was you know approximately sort of 300 million dollars worth of, of assets uh, so a good size uh, certainly not you know too small um, uh, and but some of them in, in hindsight probably were less institutional mm-hmm. so before we changed the motive we started to sort of um, get rid of the non-institutional grade assets and by the time we listed that's all we had was institutional grade assets mm-hmm. um, but what as we morphed in the team, the transition, and, and, and this is a company that had been a much larger crowdfunding company with a lot of expenditure to now a really streamlined REIT mm-hmm. with you know, very focused on its mandate, mm-hmm. we, we sort of gravitated towards industrial manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to sort of delve into why that yeah. is. Yeah, um, uh, industrial manufacturing is, is, if you think about it, 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 by its nature, if you look at real estate, or I think about real estate in its broader categories. There's real estate that um, uh, parlays to people. Mm-hmm. 
There's real estate that parlays to things, and there's real estate that parlays to information. So, for instance, in the REIT context, information, uh, cell towers, data center REITs. They're, they're, they're real estate that's financeable and an institutional grade, and their main purpose is to transfer or store information, which is an interesting thing that sure. we wouldn't have had in the last 20 years. The real estate for people is the most common, right? So we have uh, uh, housing to house you. We have uh, hotels to s for overnight staying. Uh, we have recreational Vici mm -hmm. casinos or Top Golf and mm -hmm. those types of things. Um, we have uh, medical mm -hmm. or senior housing. Uh, we have office for people to work at, which is now you know mm -hmm. sort of in in flux. Mm -hmm. But you have these things that retail, retail yeah. for people. Right. Um, and actually, though, I think retail is. Uh, categories under the things oh interesting so if okay. i think about yeah. things mm -hmm. we have uh places where things are made mm -hmm. we have places where things are just distributed and warehoused mm -hmm. then we have the things that are actually sold and mm -hmm. so retail its primary function is to sell things to people hmm. right mm -hmm. but what does it house it houses things right right uh, and then we have storage is where you put all those things that you bought right right and so as I thought about the spectrum of where we're at, we gravitated towards those things that are made. Mm -hmm. So in making, um, and being more specifically, things that are made that are really sort of endemic to the national economy, mm -hmm. things that are infrastructure-based, things that we don't even know that we need, mm -hmm. but we need because they're hidden behind walls, right. or they're hidden in, in cars, or sure. hidden in other things, small components that are really critical. Mm -hmm. And so we gravitated towards that philosophically, but we also gravitated towards it from a personality mm -hmm. standpoint. Uh, this is an industry that's predominantly blue collar. Mm -hmm. It's an industry that's predominantly sort of hardworking, no nonsense, not high finance. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was kind of the ethos of our team. Mm -hmm. Our team is, you know, Midwestern roots, um, you know, pulled up by your own bootstraps kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we identified with the asset class. We identified with the communities that these assets are located in. Mm -hmm. And that's how we started acquiring. So as we sort of resonated with what we believed in and what we were able to buy. And we were able to buy these very attractively. Um, in the last year and a half, we've acquired over 300 million of industrial manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And last year, we stated our intent to be a pure play industrial manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as part of that, that means the other assets that we have, the institutional assets, the office and the retail, predominantly mostly retail, um, they need a better owner, mm -hmm. a better home. Um, they're perfectly good assets. And if you look at all top REITs own these types of assets. Right. Uh, but we wanted to be just pure play manufacturing, which comes with its own set of unique challenges, but it's one that we felt we're comfortable with. It's interesting. We, um, I think we were talking about this at dinner last night where I was saying to you in my 20-year career, the absolute best net lease investment, net lease transaction was a sale lease back of a corporate headquarters office building. Mm -hmm. That was the best. You can structure your lease. It was fairly passive to the landlord. It was long-term. There was increases in the rent, all of these different things that you wanted. And it was the headquarters building. And conversely, there was almost no market for industrial properties. Like, yeah. No one wanted them. And if you think about it for a bit in the context of history, it makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to the mid eighties, mm -hmm. that's where we first started to see the push in, in sort of American um, literature about globalization. L manufacturing is a cost burden, mm -hmm. so therefore we need to outsource it to lower cost uh, you know, provinces. Mm -hmm. And that coincided 
from the eighties on where we got, we pushed everything out of the, out of the country. So mm-hmm. manufacturing was, a, was, you know, deemed a negative type of thing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you go back in the eighties, net lease as a sector wasn't established. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even established in the nineties. It's really been in the last 20 years, right. 15 years that mm-hmm. net lease has been accepted. I remember going, being at green street and net lease was the other, Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And there was that. Right. And, you know, the alternative. Yeah. Right. 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 And now it's, you know, I think you said yesterday there's like 25 net least publicly traded retail. Yeah. With about 60 billion. Yeah. Total market so cap, it's established. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you think about after um, since COVID, mm-hmm. what have we learned about? And we see it a lot. There's a rhetoric about supply chain security. Mm-hmm. So, yes, manufacturing in the U.S. shores requires a host- higher cost of goods sold. Mm-hmm. It means you're going to have higher wages. You're going to have higher input costs. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have certainty that you're going to have that product mm-hmm. when you need it. Mm-hmm. And we found during the global pandemic, and we've also found during the, the geopolitical crisis in the Ukraine, that you can't get the things that you thought you could before. That's right. And so um, there's now a move towards onshoring. Um, that's gaining a lot of wind. I don't think it's just uh, a tailwind. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think it's just rhetoric. I think it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it also sort of fits with where net lease is now established sector. And so now you can have, you know, we're in an era where you can have it a pure play industrial mm-hmm. manufacturer. There's more incentives to stay close. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, let's timestamp our talk right now. So okay. we're summer 2023, mm-hmm. in case someone reads this 10 or listens to this 10 years from now. Um, let's talk about our market, just the overall macroeconomic influences that are kind of um, making us think differently today. Um, let's talk about you know, how Motive and you specifically are thinking about the net lease market. Well, certainly in the last uh, 18 months, mm-hmm. maybe a little plus or minus, mm-hmm. uh, we've had an unprecedented uh rate hike environment mm-hmm. right so we went from a, a period of effectively net zero rates mm-hmm. uh or inflation uh you know got a hold of us because of that mm-hmm. uh, and you know and i think i think it was friedman had noted that inflation is a human construct right, <laughs> right. nature doesn't drape this <laughs> right. it's, it's economic <laughs> policy that does it yeah. um so we it, it had inflation and so the fight inflation the fed has been raising rates at a, an alarmingly fast rate mm-hmm. And by, by design, by design. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and since February of last year mm-hmm. and that rate environment is mm-hmm. I think the absolute level rates are not as important as the volatility in the rates and the uncertainty of that, that volatility. Mm-hmm. And so the unprecedented change in rates has made it very hard to navigate in a net lease environment where uh, for those who don't know, net lease assets um, like any real estate asset mm-hmm. class re- re- relies upon uh, leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, leverage is debt debt right? yes. yes so part mm-hmm. of your acquisition purchase mm-hmm. is part equity or cash mm-hmm. and the other part is is debt mm-hmm. a mortgage mm-hmm. um and since uh net lease assets are on long-term leases you know measured in years mm-hmm. versus days or months mm-hmm. um you typically don't have a whole lot of ability to change your pricing so you have to buy it right mm-hmm. Um, whereas a hotel or apartment can, up, you know, they can reset their rates, their Every rents day. much faster. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, if you have a rising rate environment and you're only buying a spread, I think it's proven challenging. Right. And and we certainly found that to be challenging. Mm-hmm. It's been a challenging market, but I think where the challenging market comes, as we've seen in many different cycles, opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I certainly know that Motive has, and I know GIPR mm-hmm. has, has been sort of ca- trying to capitalize on that opportunity mm-hmm. without you know, having some sort of major footfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to say it, the footfall, right? Mm-hmm. So 
you're, we're in this inflection period where transaction volume is drastically down because people, I always say, are fearful. You know, they don't understand the specifics of the market. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They've seen 18 months, roughly, of these drastic uh, rate hikes, and all of a sudden, transaction volume has stalled drastically. I was going to be more dramatic than that, but that's mm-hmm. the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. And so do you find being institutional, um, being smart about decisions, what's not making a footfall mean? I think, um, and this comes from both you know, my actual prior experience, mm-hmm. but also just my prior learning about mm-hmm. these things, reading about others. I think you have to have a very healthy respect for leverage. Mm. I don't think leverage is a negative. I don't think most think, people do. Most people associate right. any leverage as bad. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. but I think you have to be very disciplined with it. You have to be very thoughtful about it. Mm-hmm. You have to have, uh, you know, a clear idea of the risk that you're taking. Sure. Um, any decision I ever make, I always, and I don't know if this is uh, weird or not, but I, I always start. <laughs> Probably is. <laughs> I, I always start with what is the worst possible case right. scenario? Um, we say that all the time. Yeah. And then, then the I time. work my way up from there. Right. Um, you know, the, the unique thing about real estate is you, the, you realize vis-a-vis say like I wanted to go skydiving. Mm-hmm. The worst possible thing I could do in skydiving <laughs> is I could die. The worst possible thing I can do in real estate is not death. Right? <laughs> right. So there, you're already you're already materially improved. That's right. But I care very deeply about the investor. I care right. very deeply about the view that you know, coming from a sort of very lower middle class, blue collar environment. My dad was an electrician. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom worked in offices. Mm-hmm. Um, every dollar you earned was hard to keep. Sure. And you don't want to squander it. And you certainly don't want someone like me to squander it. <laughs> Um, that's just, that's breaks the trust of, of the financial system. Right. And so I care very deeply about those dollars. Mm-hmm. And so that is a real consequence. Mm-hmm. It may not be death, but I, I put a lot of emotional gravitas to, to, sure. towards it. And I want to make sure that it's a decision that if I'm making that decision, it's good. So I think leverage there can help that mm-hmm. in the right instances. Mm-hmm. You have to go into it with understanding all the risks. You have to go into it with, um, you know, eyes wide open about what could go wrong mm-hmm. and be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. But I think if you do it right, it works. Yeah. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that it's actually helpful if you do it right. Mm-hmm. And and your returns can be greater if you're using debt, if you're using leverage. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. Um, and it's not like we're trying to eke out every additional basis point of gain just because we want to. It's helpful, and we're being smart about decisions at the same time. Hundred percent. Yeah. There's a book called The Ascent of Money, which mm-hmm. is a if you haven't read it or it, your audience hasn't read it, I really mm-hmm. encourage it. It's a it's a relatively long book, but it talks about the evolution of uh, money and the actual capital markets. Mm-hmm. And once we've got into this concept of sort of uh, uh, securitized debt or mm-hmm. debt as an instrument that you know, as opposed to just you know borrowing against from, mm-hmm. from a money shark. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really advanced global economies Mm -hmm. and that the use of debt, the prudent use of debt has been essential and as well as equity has been essential Mm -hmm. for the growth of, of what we know today as a modern financial system. That's why we have central banks. That's Mm -hmm. why we talk to, you know, global access to currencies. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Good. So, um, have let's, let's get into like more lay terms. Have you been 
purchasing assets at higher cap rates. We'll kind of, instead of having these big kind of general macroeconomic discussions, how is it affecting, how is today's market affecting you, you and your company? Uh, yeah, we have been acquiring. As I mentioned, mm -hmm. we've acquired approximately $320 million of assets in the last 18 months or mm -hmm. so. Uh, net lease assets, as you know, are a spread investment, which means there is a spread or percentage spread above what the cost of capital is. So, so do, do a little math on sure. that just for so people. So understand if, it, right? if you are in an interest rate environment, so mm -hmm. typically you'll see spreads. Let's just pick an, an average spread of 250 basis points or 2.5 percent. Yep. And that'll be 2.5 percent over the cost of your capital mm -hmm. uh, in a rate environment where it was 3 percent. You could see cap rates that were 5.5. Uh, in an environment where because debt was at three percent, right? So yeah. three percent right. debt, and then mm -hmm. people said, "Well, I'm willing. I want to achieve a two point five percent delta spread. Yeah. spread. Yep. Mm -hmm. Then I will buy something at a that yields five point five percent." And we saw that in 2020, 2021. Mm -hmm. um, that was very common. Mm -hmm. Even the early parts of twenty twenty two, before the Fed started raising mm -hmm. rates, you saw that. Um, the Fed started raising rates. Banks, in turn, started raising the cost of their debt that mm -hmm. they would lend you, mm -hmm. and, and rates started to go up. Um, if they will lend to you, if they will, lend to you, right? <laughs> right? Those who are willing to lend <laughs> right. will ra right. uh, yeah. lend at a higher rate. Correct. What we saw, and this is traditional real estate, is there's a there's a lag, mm -hmm. right? So the sellers of the assets will look and say, "Hey, well, December of 2021, I could have gotten a 5.5 percent cap rate." Uh, and so now they go out in June of 2022 and they, I want a 5.5, but the market's not there mm -hmm. because it doesn't work. The math right. doesn't pencil. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you saw a lot of buyers stay, stay in the sidelines because they don't know, is it going to 6% interest rate? Is it going back to three? They didn't mm -hmm. know. They didn't know what the spread is. Should I be mm -hmm. buying at 200 basis point spread? Mm -hmm. Should I be buying at 400 basis point spread? Mm -hmm. So we saw opportunity in that. Mm -hmm. opportunity. We've um, certainly acquired assets uh, in widening cap rates over the last year and a half. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the beginning of 2022, they were six caps. Mm -hmm. Now we just, the, our last quarter, we bought over a hundred million at a weighted average of seven, seven cap. Great. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Drastically so. different from five. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, to show you and, and what has been the sentiment from the sellers or their representatives when you are making offers at what they would probably say are is a higher cap rate than what they've become accustomed to so what 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 we've i've noticed over the last 18 months of this rate environment is we've seen the buyer pool change mm -hmm. um, and that's informed the seller pool mm -hmm. uh early last year you had a lot of smaller individual private investors who had access to bank capital bidding on deals that that now only reits are bidding on that was to emphasize this point, and I, I wish I could be more dramatic, that was the very deep pool of potential buyers. You would have, right? You there were it's not uncommon at times where you would get fifteen to twenty bids on an asset, right? Because two guys <laughs> with a, a balance sheet, a bank willing to give them financing at seventy percent, could go bid, mm -hmm. and they would pay a lot mm -hmm. because the spread worked. Mm -hmm. That that's gone now. Mm -hmm. We don't have those those buyers in there. So now it's typically REITs buying or well-capitalized private equity sponsors right. uh, who have uh, capital that is not dependent on an individual mortgage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the buyer pool has reduced. I think the institutional buyers um, have always been uh, 
more price sensitive, mm-hmm. not willing to chase a thing. And so what sellers are finding is they're just not getting the bids that they even thought they would get. Right. So the question becomes to the seller is, do I really need to sell? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that answer is yes. And so they take what is market and then that becomes a new print. And then the next time around it happens, right? Just like in the housing market. Yeah. And print means like benchmark. Yes. You know, that's the new floor. That's the last yes. known <laughs> price. And so that's the, the, the current price. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. So we've both been in the industry for a while. We both um, have gray hair. We both um, <laughs> we both um, know a lot of people in the industry. We always talk about you know it's um, while it's a very large industry, it's really very small. Very small. And and we all know each other. I know people that have been in the industry for fifty years. Um, they literally made their first net lease investment when they were kind of like making up what the lease mm-hmm. terms would be. And I've read leases that have been typed on a typewriter, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that are still in effect today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, these people have said, I had no idea that I would still own this asset 50 years later. Right. And so that happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but while that's a good history lesson, let's talk about our respective ideas for the future of our industry, right? We're both, I would say on the younger side of NetLease REIT CEOs. Um, is that true? I'm just, maybe I just want to put myself in that category. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I, I'd say we're on the younger side of REIT CEOs, yes, but I don't, yeah. I don't, I couldn't answer that for NetLease. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's go with your, your, uh, definition. Yeah. And, then, um, and, and our shareholders, our respective shareholders, want us to run the companies for periods of time. And we have to kind of have a not so much a crystal ball, but a forecast mm-hmm. of based on our experiences in the past. So what do you think the future of our industry has for both of us? Uh, look, I think the, the net lease sector has had a tremendous amount of evolution in the last 15 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's only going to continue. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is 15 years as an asset class is not a long time of history. Uh, as you get more data and more experience, um, that means there's been some viability. And as you have viability, you have more market entrance. Mm-hmm. And, and so the more people who are participating in this environment, it leads to innovation. You, you talked about leases. Mm-hmm. And I think um, net lease is just a construct. It's a form of lease. Um, the assets can be not, not net lease or, or they can be net lease. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen a lot of evolution in net lease uh, in terms of the lease types. And right? then it depends on someone's definition of a net lease. Correct. Yeah. Sorry. Right. <laughs> and so if you think about this lease that you're having a tenant mm-hmm. sign, mm-hmm. you know, for us, uh, oftentimes the focus, we hear about the focus has been on cap rates. And mm-hmm. cap rates are important. Don't, mm-hmm. don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to uh, belittle them. Cap rates are very important. The economics are very important. Mm-hmm. But just as important is the terms of your lease, the conditions of that lease. And I think we're seeing a lot more advancement and sophistication in making sure leases are designed to last 50 years or designed to protect in that sort of binary outcome if they mm-hmm. don't run a renew. And who's uh, driving that? Who- I think it's a lot of, uh, candidly, I think it's some of the REITs. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of the private equity sponsors mm-hmm. that have been buying assets. Mm-hmm. Um, I think net lease assets because some people view it as a financial instrument and i think that's a fair mm-hmm. analogy 
Um, like, like a widget, you know, yeah. like, here's it, a way to make a return is to buy one of these assets. Right? Being a financial instrument mm-hmm. means that you're going to attract increasingly, net lease is a sector that has a lot of Wall Street in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a, a development read or something like that has more sort of the real estate dirt guys. Mm-hmm. So real estate capital markets uh, folks, particularly from the Wall Street or the banking environment, have made their way into net lease. And there's a lot of innovation that has come from that. And I think that's going to continue. I think... Uh, net lease is very, very conducive to scale, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I don't know how many properties Realty Income or O has, mm-hmm. but it's a lot, mm-hmm. right? And they don't have to have exponentially that much more employees to manage those assets. Mm-hmm. So not unlike a portfolio of securities, a net lease is conducive to scale. So I think we're going to see a lot of evolution. I mm-hmm. think we may, I think you'll ebb and flow in terms of consolidation, right? I think you said there's 25 names mm-hmm. out there. That's mm-hmm. probably, you know, 15 too many. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the exact number, but it seems like a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot there. You know, we've seen ev- that happen in other sectors too, right? There's quite a few apartment REITs out there and they're, they're stratified by class. Mm-hmm. But we've seen consolidation in some of the sectors where mm-hmm. there was a lot of early entrants. Then there was consolidation. And then if there was unique opportunities, then you saw expansion again of new mm-hmm. entries. Mm-hmm. So, right. So um, you and I both at, at least claim to each other that we like to be analytical, we like to use data and we just don't like to make decisions based on gut feelings. Yes, experience matters, and mm-hmm. but we actually like to use math. Um, tell us how Motive and you specifically, how your team uses data to make decisions on on your acquisitions or just the overall operations of your company. Yeah, so our, so our investment approach is um, we have an investment committee. Uh, this is I, I learned approach from investment committee, you know, 11 years at BlackRock. So, mm-hmm. every, you know, BlackRock you, utilized an investment committee um, where you had the view that there were multiple uh, individuals in the organization that had a, a diverse experience. And so that wisdom and, and, and being an opine mm-hmm. uh, allowed you to get a more holistic view of an investment decision. So we have an investment committee. It's a four-person investment committee that we vote on. But before we get to an investment committee, and every time we look at a decision we do uh, we do an ic or investment committee mm-hmm. memo mm-hmm. um and what we'll do is we'll underwrite the asset traditionally so we're underwriting the real estate the quality mm-hmm. of the real estate the the location the demographics all the things is, is good bones mm-hmm. is it in a good spot mm-hmm. as much as you can have mm-hmm. for a manufacturing asset then we look at the tenant the credit profile we do both internal credit analysis and we use a third party external credit analysis mm-hmm. so we run that mm-hmm. um you know we'll look at sort of it's really smart by the way that's why we have for gipr we have the chief credit officer mm-hmm. for aig insurance on our board yeah you know so credit matters credit matters 100 yeah, right <laughs> right, right? Yes. it's very important in yes. a lease environment uh-huh. And so we're underwriting all those, all those mm-hmm. things. And we're underwriting the industry that they're in. So not mm-hmm. only just their credit, but the, mm-hmm. the sort of the, if you will, the credit or the viability of the industry in, mm-hmm. what they're manufacturing. We do all that. So that's a lot of that. It's qualitative. Right. Uh, there may be numbers associated with it, but it's really, there's no finite way to mm-hmm. measure that. Mm-hmm. What we then do, though, is we run an accretion dilution analysis. Mm-hmm. So we underwrite, um, if we're to acquire this property, is it accretive? We look on a three-year basis. Mm-hmm. I think um, sometimes people do it on a spot basis, and I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, these are long-term leases, so mm-hmm. we can't go too far out of the curve because right. we can't measure. It. So we right. do a three-year, and then we actually load that into. We use Yardi, which is our uh, property accounting system, and mm-hmm. we load that into it, and so we project 
F we do accretion dilution on an FFO on an AFFO basis, mm -hmm. and we look at it on a portfolio level too. So we look at it at the asset level mm -hmm. and then on the portfolio level. Before you buy it. Be, as part of the investment committee decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then yeah. what we do is we're strategic about how we bid. Mm -hmm. um, it's rare. Look, I think um, off-market transactions, people always, they, you know, some people, some REITs pivot, uh, excuse me, start over. <laughs> some REITs like to pitch that they, they can source a lot of off-market. Right. In the net lease sector, I think it's foolish, personally, if any seller did not explore the market. Right. If I'm going to do a de novo sell lease back mm -hmm. or I'm selling us, I should get price discovery. Mm -hmm. there, it's a price discovery is a form of efficiency. Mm -hmm. And I, so I have no qualms with there being a brokered listing. Mm -hmm. That said, I'm not going to get emotional about a property and chase it. We're going to vote on it. We're going to come in what we think is reasonable based on the talk that the broker's given us mm -hmm. to get in our first round because we don't know what we don't know and they don't know what they don't know. Right. So we want to try to get ourselves to the second round. Mm -hmm to give us a, a greater chance to do more analysis. Mm -hmm. um, once we get into the second round, then we will price it relative to what we believe is prudent. Mm -hmm. um, in some instances, that might be a lower cap rate. In some instances, that might be a wider cap rate. Mm -hmm. We will stick to our guns. Mm -hmm. uh, our design is that we know what we've done. We've done our homework. We're right. I tour every asset. Mm -hmm. uh, we know when, when we say we can close, we'll close. But I we won't budge. Right. Right. Um, we've had many instances where deals have come back to us, where they picked someone that had a tighter optical cap rate, mm -hmm. but then found out that in the details that they didn't, or they were retrading, mm -hmm. or they didn't really understand it. And as I mentioned earlier, cap rate or the cost is only one part of it. Mm -hmm. For us, it's the language in the lease. What right. are the assignment language? Sure. All, you know, all these types of things. We're dealing with private equity buyers who typically have these funds or buying these companies, and they're going to hold them for three to five years. They're doing sell leasebacks as a form of financing. We mm -hmm. understand that. Mm -hmm. We understand our role in that. Mm -hmm. But we also understand that they're going to sell this company. Mm -hmm. We understand that a lot of them will go, and if they're not an operating private equity firm, but they're a financial private equity firm, they're just going to lever it up. Right. And if you don't control for that, you're going to buy a property, and then it's going to turn into being a highly levered tenant afterwards. Mm -hmm. And too often, we've seen those go BK. I think you're underrepresenting how much leverage, though. I mean, they will try and get every... They'll go from uh, three right. times to a 10 times. Correct. Right after they've closed on the deal. Right. And they'll strip out all the cash. <laughs> and so we really look for the mm -hmm. sponsors that are operationally focused. Mm -hmm. They've got a specialty. And, you know, they're buying these middle markets. These mm -hmm. are middle market credits because that's where the opportunity is. Because mm -hmm. the larger funds have to buy the larger scale things. Mm -hmm. right? they, can't, they can't just put out $50 million. Mm -hmm. They have to put out $500 million. Now, you kind of pass by one of the topics you just discussed is that you actually go see all of the properties. Um, so, you know, we do the exact same thing. Um, tell us why you do that as the CEO and, and tell us, you know, what, uh, maybe a horror story you found after, um, you've done that on one of your site visits. Why I do it. Um, two reasons. Because well, it's not typical. That's, I think it's that's not the point. typical. Right. Um, right. It, it's not easy either. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of travel, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to places that are not, major, they're not major markets. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's planes, trains, automobiles. Right. Um, I think it's, it's two reasons. One, it's congruent with who I am mm -hmm. that if I'm going to like, again, I think very deeply about that, that individual investor. And you know, if that, I, I liken it, if that was my mother or my father mm -hmm. or my relative and they had put their nest egg in there, right. I, I don't want to screw that up. Mm -hmm. And, for me to get confidence, I want to see this asset. I think it, 
that's part of it. So I just think it's really important that I see this asset, that I gather as much information I can. Um, the other thing is what I found, particularly with industrial manufacturing, it's very nuanced, mm -hmm. right? So um, a CVS might, you know, a CVS is a CVS is a CVS. Well, we know that's not true mm -hmm. in the real estate context, but it's a lot more uniform. Mm -hmm. Manufacturing facilities are not. Every one of them is sort of bespoke. Mm -hmm. You can't really spec build manufacturing because it's designed <laughs> right. by the founder of the company or the right. needs of those things. Mm -hmm. So you need to see the asset. And look, most manufacturing boxes, if you are, the bones of them, mm -hmm. are they're not overly original. They're, you know, mm -hmm. they're not skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. They're not right. real overly beautiful. Mm -hmm. But what's important is how they're laid out. What's important, what's inside them mm -hmm. in terms of equipment. It's important how viable that business is. Mm -hmm. And you pick that stuff up by going to it. So mm -hmm. I think you learn a lot by doing it. So that's one mm -hmm. reason. Um, the other one is, it's, it's just, I think congruent with, as I mentioned before, myself and my message to the investors that I know what this is. Mm -hmm. I've got, I've seen every one of our assets. I've toured every one of our assets. I've toured every asset that we're going to buy, even the assets we don't buy. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but in the process of doing so, you start to develop a real sixth sense mm -hmm. of what market is, mm -hmm. of what is a good operation? What's not horror stories. I don't know if I have any mm -hmm. real horror stories. It just, um, but I think you get a sense of it. For instance, I found, like we toured in Ohio, uh, a glass manufacturer. Mm -hmm. um, been around for 100 years, uh, you know, uh, gargantuan property, but a very old property. Mm -hmm. And just walk through it and realize that's not us. It's mm -hmm. too big of an asset, too old of an asset. What happens? Mm -hmm. You ask yourself with a manufacturer, <laughs> what happens if they go dark? Right. Right. And we've, if you've ever... If anyone's ever taken the Amtrak from either Boston down to DC, through mainly yeah. through New Jersey, Pennsylvania, right. you'll see a lot of derelict for sure manufacturing facilities. Right. These are from the 1800s, right? They never were retented. Right. Uh, that's the, the the risk that people and fear people have. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fear that a risk that can be easily avoided, but it helps to avoid those risks by touring the assets. Mm -hmm. That's great. We we always like to say we get a much better feel of um, the community when we're there. Uh, and then we're very relational in, in our company. So we want to talk to the people who are operating that asset. Mm -hmm. Like who is in charge of the facilities and the operations of this, of these four walls. Um, so we can make a decision on whether or not that's the right person. And we want to invest our shareholders money into that. Yeah. That's smart. Um, okay. I'm going to get personal now. Okay. All right. So, uh, every color is blue. <laughs> um, you, I would, I would probably deem you to be the fittest net lease REIT CEO in the market. I have no idea if that's true. I'm, I'm just telling you, okay. you are right. right. <laughs> uh, tell us what your last race was. Uh, so I'm a runner. So that the race that I do is a running race. Uh -huh. Um, and I, 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 and I do distance trail running, okay. which I, I differentiate that because in high school, I was a cross country and track runner. Right. And road races and shorter distances um, are very much about about time. Right. Right. And and I'm not competitive in that regard. Uh, ultra races. <laughs> Physically competitive. Well, I just like, well, in the sense that, yeah, no, I'm not. I, I, I never won really enjoyed, even though I was a good runner uh -huh. i wasn't a great runner in those shorter distances and those faster speeds. i never really enjoyed that mm -hmm. push that feeling that you're just like your your lungs are always burning mm -hmm. um when i found trail running which actually 
allows you to be commune with nature, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy, mm-hmm. um, along with distance running, which typically the thing about distance running, and I'll give you an example, you, let's say you've never run more than 10 miles in your life. And I've never run more than 30 miles in my life. And then when you run 11 and I run 31, we both achieve the same goal. Mm-hmm. We just both achieved a personal record, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't necessarily how fast you ran it because there's always going to be someone's faster. Right. <laughs> and there's always going to be someone who can run longer than you, right. but for you to do it. And I think about uh, trail running in, in distances, there are lots of distances. Mm-hmm. The, the, the human mind is really shifted now. There are races that are, you know, three-day races that are 250 miles. Right. Kudos to them. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's, so it's a wonderful personal development. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I like in running, I call it the, the Schumpeter shuffle. So, you know, Joseph Schumpeter, creative destruction uh-huh. economist by, and I shuffle because it's a bit of a shuffle because right. you don't want to, you don't want to trip over a root <laughs> right. or something or a rock, uh-huh. but you have, by doing that, you're pushing yourself on the trail. You're creating a new version of yourself mm-hmm. as you destroy the old version. Mm-hmm. Right. So as you push through and climb this mountain or push farther, you are expanding who you are as a person. And mm-hmm. my measure of uh, each day is, did I improve over mm-hmm. the prior version of myself? So how are you using that in the company? Well, it's, it's sort of um, the Japanese philosophy of Kaizen, mm-hmm. so constant and never-ending improvement, mm-hmm. always trying to iterate, mm-hmm. always trying to be better. Some days you're going to be a lot better, and some days you're not. Better, <laughs> right. Right? And that's, that's life. That's right. Um, and so I, I use running to me is analogous to that. And so the last race I did, I think it was two weeks ago, it was a half marathon in uh, Tahoe. Mm-hmm. Um which yeah. is where the company's headquarters. We're in, in Reno, Reno, so we're yeah. just down the hill from Tahoe, and yeah. you know it was great to be able to run out in nature on a trail, mm-hmm. could see Lake Tahoe. We're getting mountain air. Mm-hmm. My next race is coming up in August. It's a it's a trail marathon. Mm-hmm. So, and my goal is to I've been you know um, transitioning into longer races, um, and you know visions for fifty k's and and hundred k's and and at some point a hundred miler mm-hmm. here in the next sort of twenty four months. Yeah. But that said, I, I, again, I'm not doing it for the sake of running in terms of racing. Uh, there are some, I love to see the really good runners. Mm-hmm. It's just a personal journey. Yeah. It's, it's actually one of my hobbies. Yeah. Um, you have four kids. Mm-hmm. What do you worry about for them? There's a lot of things you can worry about for children. Pa- parents just worry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, my, I view my job is to try to be uh, as good a, a guide and mentor as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to be protectors. Yes. But it's not yeah. always the role that you, know. you can have. You're so right. Um, and so I, I my, my biggest wish for my children, which is a little bit different than the fear, mm-hmm. uh, and I tend to focus on the, on, the, on the what to be obtained, is that they find the fullest version of themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't care what it is. That's exactly right. I just right. hope that they um, can expand and grow uh, mm-hmm. in an environment where, and sometimes those are going to be stub toes or mm-hmm. the, you know, the, um, hurt feelings, hurt feelings yeah. and things like that, right. mm-hmm. but that they grow into the fullest version of themselves so that they can find themselves to be content when mm-hmm. they're adults. Because mm-hmm. I think in our society, there's so often that people are not, That's right. they lack. And I, you know, I don't think it means you need to have any certain type of thing, mm-hmm. but whatever is congruent with you is what I hope they find. That's right. I always tell my kids like, the struggle is the fun part. Like you have to learn how it feels to 
earn something. And that takes a ton of work and pain and disappointment and failure and everything, but it makes you so much better long-term. And the people who don't experience that don't have that feeling. That's well said. I think mm-hmm. that's why I like running, mm-hmm. the distance running, mm-hmm. because it is a struggle. <laughs> right. And I like I like the challenge of right. it, right? Because it, you know, I we've, we've all heard this, but you know, you don't know happiness until you've felt sadness. Mm-hmm. You don't know comfort until you've felt discomfort or pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we only had, you know, marshmallows and roses, <laughs> we, we wouldn't understand. We would, we would feel melancholy right. because we don't have a, a reference point. Right. It's funny you went to marshmallows because we, we disclosed to each other last night that we're both addicted to sugar. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. like we just can't stop. Right. Sugar's a nice thing. Um, okay. We're going to do rapid fire. Okay. You ready? Go. Uh, favorite book. Good to great by Jim Collins. Yeah, that's a good one. Favorite podcast? Tim, uh, Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss? Yeah. What was your first ever job? First ever job uh, was the Long's Drugstore, which is now Walgreens in Sparks, Nevada. Uh-huh. Uh, I lied about my age. <laughs> I was 14. Uh, I was tall. That back then, minimum wage was $3.35 an hour. And they didn't ask for your social security number for some reason. So. I can't believe you just said that. I didn't know that about you. I lied about my first job at 14. Yeah. I got paid three thirty-five an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember getting my first paycheck. I was a dishwasher. Yeah. I, I told him I was 15. Yeah. <laughs> I got my first paycheck. It was $100.35. I thought I had won the lottery. It was the greatest feeling ever. Yeah, wow. So we can show our vintage. Yeah. Minimum wage <laughs> yeah. was three thirty-five. <laughs> Um, what advice would you give yourself five years ago? Good or bad, part of my personality, I've likened it to a bag of hammers. Uh, so imagine if you have a tool bag, you're, uh, you're a carpenter, mm-hmm. um, and all you have are hammers. You've got a mallet, and you've got a ball-peen hammer, and like that. <laughs> it's really hard to build a house with just hammers. <laughs> you need saws, you need screwdrivers. And I live life with a bunch of hammers. And so I think I would tell myself, pick up some different tools. Right. Right. <laughs> I was sort of a blunt instrument. Right. Uh, uh, that's good and bad. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of force of energy. A lot of like I've had a very diverse nonlinear career and I've done mm-hmm. a lot of different things. Uh, but I probably could have made it a little bit easier on myself if mm-hmm. I had just learned how to be a screwdriver. <laughs> I love it. Great analogy. Um, last question. How many motive T-shirts do you own? <laughs> I, I had a lot more. Um, I'm, I'm prone to food stains uh, or coffee stains. So I probably have like five now. Okay. You're yeah. down to five. That's yes. great. Yeah. Aaron, we are so thankful. This Thank has you. been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad that we got to um, kind of talk about the industry together. Um, let people see that, you know, you can have a relationship with a peer in the industry. And that's really important to us. I know to, to you as well. Well, I don't think it would be possible if it wasn't for you and your personality. So kudos to you. <laughs> I think, you know, there's a lot of CEOs out there who, who, who aren't collaborative. Mm. Um, and I appreciate that you are. And uh, I also thank you. For, this is my first ever podcast. Is that right? Yeah. So oh, we're honored. Know, I, I, yeah. want, I hope this ranks just right up with Joe Rogan. Um, you know, same, same you know, number. Good, right? <laughs> thank Great. you. Great. Well, Aaron, thanks again. Um, thank you for listening to Conversations with GIPR. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.